Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow, wow, wow. Amazing episode with Guy Kawasaki, former chief evangelist at Matt, at Apple, uh, current chief evangelist at Canva. Uh, total, total uh, icon, right, in the world of tech and entrepreneurship. Uh, we talk about, I mean, this is, <laughs> I mean, we talk about everything from vomit, <laughs> vomit when you're writing a book, to uh, Steve Jobs, his time at Apple, to his new book, Think Remarkable. Um, and his podcast and everything in between. I mean, this guy has lived 10 lives, and um, I encourage you to stay tuned because you're about to hear probably one of the best episodes we've had on The Greatness Machine. Enjoy. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Machazza, and boy, do we have a special guest. My man, Guy Kawasaki, is in the house. What's up, Guy? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You got to pick up the pace of your talk, you know? You can't, you can't listen to this at one point, more than 1.0 or else you're screwed. <laughs> How you doing, guy? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Man, happy Tuesday. I'm, I'm so pumped to have you on the show. And uh, here we are. We're here to promote the new book. Um, but yeah, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, you're about the, I think, the second or third interview I've done for the book. So All right. um, you're, you're getting me fresh. Yeah, I'm getting you nice and warmed up. Well, a lot to talk about with the new book, so I'm pumped to do that. Do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and we'll get started with the show? You can do all the housekeeping you like. I'm Asian. I'm used to housekeeping. (laughs) I love it. Well, so for listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. My man Guy here is neither short of passion nor greatness. So a guy's been on my list for a long time. He was interviewed by a good friend of mine, Hala Taha of Young and Profiting. And uh, I saw the show and I was like, oh, man, uh, first of all, I love the products you support. You're, you're an icon in the tech world and uh, one of the OGs in the world of influence. So <laughs> so really, really cool to have you here. Um, you know, I, I, I want to give our listeners, for anyone that's been living under a rock, maybe d- d- is not familiar with your work, I want to I give a little bit of your formal bio and then l- would love to, to get a little bit of your origin story. Does that sound, sound like a plan to you, my friend? That's <laughs> it. 
<laughs> Just don't tell people I wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> so I have a funny story. Last night, I'm in, I was in Malibu at a, um, at a dinner with, with uh, I'm in a CEO forum, and I'm at a dinner with about nine other CEOs, and they're running some pretty interesting businesses. And I was telling them that, <laughs> that I'm interviewing you tomorrow. And, and they said, oh, he's the guy that did Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I said, no, no, not that guy. <laughs> not K Kiyosaki, Kawasaki. It's very different. Come on. See, Open we not ears. only look alike, we sound alike. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. So, I, you know, what's funny is I distinctly know both of your works. So for me, there was no confusion. But uh, for listeners who think we're talking about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, we're talking about the much richer dad here. Uh, <laughs> So, I, should, I should write the book, Remarkable Dad, Mediocre Dad. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Remarkable Dad, Mediocre Dad. That's the next one. That's, not, that's book 17. So, um, guys, guy here was raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, you went to high school. Iolani, is that where you went to high school? Is that, did I get that right? Yep. So, yep. so This is the school that Barack Obama couldn't get into. Yeah, he's a loser, that guy, whoever, whoever he is. <laughs> I have a funny story about Iolani in a second, but um, he's written 16 books, including The Art of the Start, Art of Social Media, and many, many more. This is We're talking about his 16th book here today. We'll talk about that in a second. He did two tours of duty at Apple, was the chief evangelist, um, as well as uh, currently chief evangelist at, App, at Canva, excuse me. Uh, currently the host of the Be Remarkable podcast, has had some amazing guests on the show. And we're here today to talk about his new book, Think Remarkable, Nine Paths to transform your life and make a difference. So, man, so excited to, for this conversation. I've been pumped about it for months now. Um, I'd love... <laughs> you must have a boring life. <laughs> oh, no, listen, guy, you, you, the, like this, the, my heart sings when I do this show. So, so no, you, you don't know. For me, I, I, I don't have a boring life and I'm excited for this show. Um, <laughs> I would love, you know, we love origin stories here and you've had such an interesting and remarkable journey so far. I would love if you could give a little bit of your origin story to our audience. How far back do you want me to go? You know, like, uh, yeah, that's a, look, when, when were you born? 1959? Uh, 54. 54? Yeah, wherever you want. <laughs> okay. So I am from Honolulu, Hawaii. I grew up in a lower middle class uh, area. A very, very mixed race. You know, Hawaiian, Filipino, Japanese, Chinese. I mean, you... Everything except Howley's, actually. Um, so I guess it wasn't that mixed. And uh, the, I want to start my, you know, origin story from a school in Kalihi Valley named Kalihi Elementary School, which is this public school. And in about the sixth grade, my teacher told my parents, you got to get guy out of the public school system and get him in a private school college prep system because he has too much potential. And, you know, you're going to waste his potential if he stays in this track. So, you know, thank you, God, that teacher said that. Thank you, God, my parents listened. Thank you, God, my parents were willing to make the sacrifice to put me into a private school. That's Iolani. And Iolani led to Stanford. Now, as I look back, I don't know what the hell I was thinking applying to Stanford. I don't know why I applied to Stanford. I don't know how I got into Stanford, but, you know, God was looking out for me. So I got in and I went and um, Stanford was a life changing experience. And so, you know, if you're from Hawaii, uh, many, many people are in this track of 
they stay local. They stay in Hawaii. And in Hawaii, you can you can run a hotel, you can run a store, you can, you know, work in agriculture, but there's no tech business per se. This is, you know, back in the 70s. And so um, th that's sort of the horizon there. You know, I'm successful. I run the hotel. I run the store. And and then I, I come to Stanford and it was like the the scales were removed from my eyes. I mean, mm. holy shit. You know, there's like companies like Hewlett and Packard and, well, not Hewlett and Packard. It's Hewlett Packard <laughs> and National Semiconductor, Intel and all that. And I, I said, man, you know, this is where I was meant to be. Now, going back a little bit, in high school, there's sort of two or three formative events. So, you know how when you when you talk to people and they and you say, so what motivated you? And they give you this bullshit answer like, oh, I wanted to make the world a better place. Right. Well, let me tell you something. So in high school, some family friend gave me a ride in his Porsche 911. And when I got that ride, I said, holy shit, man, like forget changing the world. Let's just change the car. And then also in high school, like I said, I lived in a um, rough area. So twice I got hijacked on the bus for like oh. lunch money. And so basically I'm telling you that I got robbed twice and I rode this Porsche. And, and I, I don't know if I should admit my origin, but my origin is I had those three experiences and I said, shit, guy, you are going to live someplace where you can have a Porsche and you not get robbed. And that was the motivating factor for me. So That's then simple. I go to Stanford and I say, like, holy cow, you know, the oceans part. There's people who like are building companies and and look at how their lifestyles. And then at Stanford, there's this thing called Parents Day. And so all the parents, you know, fly in or drive in and they, and they meet their precious little jewels who are now at Stanford. <laughs> so my friends, some of them, one cardiologist in particular, he shows up at Parents Day. He's the father of one of my friends in the dorm. And he pulls up in his Ferrari. And I said... <laughs> This is this is where be, I belong, okay? Yeah. And now everybody's like listening to this and saying, what a shallow, insipid, materialistic little schmuck this guy is. But I'm 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 just being honest and one of the lessons that I learned in my life is it doesn't matter what motivates you. I mean, if you're a if you're like a, you know, absolute psychopath i'm not saying that's okay but generally speaking you want to change the world god bless you you want to make a difference god bless you you want to end poverty or climate change god bless you i'm just being honest what motivated me was those three experiences and at at the end of the day you know it doesn't matter what motivated you it's just that you got motivated because that motivation made me study that motivation made me work my ass off and that motivation got me to where i am so shallow as my beginnings are you know the outcome was pretty good huh? so what can i say so if, you know if if 
you know, a lot of people think that, oh, envy is a bad thing. You know, it's jealousy and it's, you know, it's evil and negative. I got to tell you, in my experience, envy is a good thing. I envied mm. that guy who had a Porsche. Okay. I envied people who wouldn't get robbed where they live. And, and so I think envy can be a force for good. And also, you know, I like right now, I envy people who can cross step and hang 10 on the nose of their surfboard. Okay. I like literally the word is envy. I wish I could do that. I am dedicating my life to doing that. So is that so bad that you envy? You know, I, I bet Christy Yamaguchi, when she was growing up, she envied figure skaters who were in the Olympics, right? Yeah. I mean, I bet you Tom Brady envied, I don't know, Joe Montana. Is that so wrong? So, like, I'm, I'm losing readers rapidly. I should just shut up right now. No, no, no. no. I, listen, I, you're, I, I always tell the, the listeners that I don't care if they leave. It's, this is about me and, and, the, and, the, me and, me and the guests. So <laughs> <laughs> screw them. No, I'm kidding. We love you guys. Um, no, no, I don't think so. Like, I think that, um, well, they say that I, I heard a recent quote, which, since we're talking about envy, which was uh, by Ryan Holiday. He said, comparison is not the, uh, en- or what is it? Comparison is not the thief of joy. Envy is the thief of joy. What do you, based on what you just said, do you agree with that or disagree with that? <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess maybe the, the better statement is I am neutral on envy because mm. envy can turn you into a small, conceited, arrogant little prick, right? Yeah. Or envy can drive you to great accomplishments now yeah. i'm putting words in people's mouths but you know i i bet you that you could take a lot of people who have done amazing things like i would say not that i know this firsthand but i bet you steve jobs envied gordon moore at intel right or envied somebody who created you know some great work of art in japan and now that didn't turn him into a, a, you know, a little angry little person. It drove him to create Apple. And Apple increased the productivity and creativity of millions of people. So Steve Jobs envied people who were successful. That drove him to become successful. Is that so bad? I don't think so. I mean, my perspective on this, and I'm someone that's, but I would consider myself a person that's been fairly envious of others for, for a large piece of my life. And I've taken the position that when it all, if it's all consuming, then it just makes you, you know, even if you're achieving a lot, it's hard to enjoy the achievement because you're just, right. and you just move on to the next thing to envy, right? But I think a, a nice little, like a small dose of it, just to like put, stick in your back pocket. I think that that's a nice little kick in the ass that people need to be remarkable. Yeah. I, I would agree well, with that. I mean, if somebody said, okay, guy, pick one, envy or complacency, oh, guess envy. which one I would pick, right? Now, en- you envy. know, my, my book is divided into three parts. It's growth, grit, and grace. So I think that growth, one aspect of growth is envy. For me to grow in education and work experience, I had to envy this. And then to accomplish that, it took grit, it took perseverance. But then now in the last third of my career, it's all about grace. 
and and that's a transition that many people don't make so grace means that you realize you've been fortunate and there's a french phrase noblesse oblige that you know the the nobility has an obligation to other people mm -hmm. i i actually don't like that term because it implies that you know nobility that if you're if you're prince harry or king charles or meghan markle or you know princess diana or whatever then you have this noblesse oblige because you're nobility i think the better term is success oblige that is when you are successful you have an obligation to help people also become successful and to use a metaphor you know somebody something luck whatever open the door for you and you have an obligation to not shut that door behind you and in fact you should make that door bigger that's an obligation you have when you are so fortunate to have success but let's just say not everybody agrees with this theory well, well they may superficially agree but they sure as hell don't act like it Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. 
You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. I think that that there's a perspective that I'm hearing you say, which is around servant leadership, right? Where... I, and I and I I've been I've been probably a student of leadership now for gosh I'm 45 I don't know 30 plus years since I was high school, and I think some people have it in them and some people don't. I mean, what do you think? Well, I mean, obviously not everybody has it, but uh, you know, if you look at somebody like Jimmy Carter, right? So obviously, the, the last parts of his life. I don't think he's dead yet, but the last, the last part of his life, Habitat for Humanity, he was serving society, right? He, he, he wasn't just sitting in the Jimmy Carter library and charging quarter million dollars to companies for him to come speak. That, that's not how he finished his career. And I would even say, not that I know this for fact, but if you look at what Bill Gates is doing, with the Gates Foundation, I would say that that's evidence of success oblige. Um, so, you know, at some point, it's not the money because you can only spend so much and it's not the fame and the power. It's like, what are people going to say about you after you're dead? And, well, I can tell you in Washington, D.C., there's a, a very few people who obviously care what, what people are going to say about when you're dead, right? So I think that's the test. Like, what are people going to say when you're gone? Have you, for yourself, I mean, obviously, you've, you've had a remarkable career, not, not to overuse the word remarkable, because we're going to be talking about your book. But, um, <laughs> you know, when you start thinking about yourself, and have you had that thought about yourself? Like, hey, how do I want people to consider me when I'm not here anymore? Is that something I that you think about given? that every day? And, wh- and where, do you, where have you landed on that? I have landed that I can, I want people to sum up my life in two words. Empowered people. Mm. I want people to say when Guy was alive, he empowered people. He empowered people with his books, with his podcasts, with his speaking, with his investing, with his advising. You know, guy helped me succeed. And I don't mean necessarily in a hands-on, you know, mentoring way. I I think, you know, I can help people, even if they never meet me, never interact with me, with my writing or my podcast. And I will tell you that the, the two most formative books in my life one is If You Want to Write by Brenda Uland, U-E-L-A-N-D. And the other is Mindset by Carol Dweck. Yeah. And Carol Dweck's book is all about the growth mindset. I happen to be friends with Carol, so I know her personally. But Brenda Eulin died before 
I read her book. So I can't say I know her personally, but I'm telling you that Brenda Eulin made my life better and enabled me to succeed. And we will never meet. Well, we might meet in heaven, but we will never meet. And so, you know, Brenda Eulin empowered me. Carol Dweck empowered me. I happen to know one and I happen to not know the other one. And, you know, knock on wood, after I'm dead, people are going to say they read Think Remarkable when they were 20 or 25 and they were floundering and it gave them direction. So, you know, Guy Kawasaki's book had an enormous impact on me. And I'll tell you something, I will be smiling in heaven. I love that, man. Let me ask you a question because, you know, when I was going through and doing research on the show, First of all, I saw that we had something in common that we both went to UC Davis. Um, for I went to UC Davis. <laughs> what what degree did you get there? Well, so funny enough, I like yourself left UC Davis. I was there for two years, um, and then I was a manager of economics major. I saw that you went to law school there, and then I left after two years and graduated from UC Santa Barbara with a managerial economics major. Um, well, business economics is what they call it there, and so. One of the things I, I, I thought that was really interesting when I saw that is that you chose to leave when you saw that your professors were trying to change you. And, well, and you were a young guy, okay. right? So I, I wanted you to talk about that because I think that kind of talks about what you're talking about right now, which is, you know, you're talking about writing a book for that it's going to change a 20-year-old's life. But when you were that 20-year-old or 21-year-old, you know, 22-year-old, whatever it was, um, you, you, took, you, you knew yourself well enough to know that that wasn't right for you. And I, and I wanted to, and I just thought it was interesting, well, but we both left that place together. Okay. So. so this is a complicated story. So to give you the, to give the listeners the, the total story, um, as I said, I'm from Honolulu and my father and mother never went to college, but my father was very successful as a politician. He became a state Senator and his dream for his kid was you go to law school and someday end up in politics, right? So because I'm a good Japanese American and this is the 1970s, back then, if you're Japanese American, you're supposed to be doctor, lawyer, or dentist. And so I, I go to Stanford and I enroll in this pre-med class that you do rounds at the Stanford hospital. And I swear to God, first day I faint. So I figure, <laughs> you know what? Maybe medical's not for you. And then I thought, man, do I really want to stick my hand in people's mouths for the rest of my life? Ah, I don't think so. So what was left was law. So I apply. I get into UC Davis Law School. I go there. And I was freaking miserable. I could, I, this is the first time in my life I really, you know, chickened out. I just, I could not stand just the intimidation of the the case method that, you know, Mr. Kawasaki, please recite the facts of this case. And, you know, and in, you know, Jones versus Indiana, what was the conclusion? Like, I, I just, I couldn't handle that. And so I quit after two weeks and, um, you know, not now decades later, I, I can say that, that, that quitting, I don't know if it was a pivotal origin story that made me take the right track, but it certainly didn't hurt me, right? Now, now there's a lesson there too, because 
I think everybody has this fear of the slippery slope, right? So at an extreme, I mean, you you quit violin class or you quit AP calculus or you, you know, you, you quit law school. And the slippery slope means that now you're screwed. You're a quitter. The rest of your life, you're a loser because you quit violin class at six. And I am living proof that that's not true. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I, I think you give me too much credit if you're saying, oh, guy, at that young age, you realize this wasn't right for you. And so you chose another path. You know, God bless you if you want to think that's what happened. But basically, <laughs> I was just intimidated and I couldn't handle it. I basically chickened out. Um, I never chickened out since then. But <laughs> so I, I guess the message to people is, you know what? Like, it's not so slippery, this slope. It, you know, yeah. um, that people change. Things change. You know, at any now, if you quit two, three, four things in a row, you know, sure. maybe that slope is looking slippery. But uh, don't make yourself crazy over one thing. Love that, man. I appreciate you, the feedback. And um, so, speaking of that, you know, in the book, you talk about resilience, and and I mean, you know, we're talking right now around this idea of quitting becoming a habit or being a slippery slope. And there's an, uh, the, the inverse of that from a resilience standpoint would be that we don't just quit until, you know, we know, sometimes we know right away to your point, like I'm half Persian. So in Persian culture, it's like doctor, lawyer. So, you know, doctor, lawyer, what's the third one? I don't know, professor, probably in my family. Um, my dad was always like, you're going to be the doctor. I'm like, I don't want to be a doctor, man. You want to be a lawyer. I'm like, no, man, I want to be, an, my dad was an entrepreneur, by the way. So I was like, no, I'll be an entrepreneur like you. Um, so I get it. I think there's a lot of, of uh, Japanese culture, Middle Eastern culture, a lot of you know, <laughs> Jewish culture. It's like you, you got to be one of the few to make your family proud. I, I think we live in a different world. You obviously, I think probably being in Stanford and being in Silicon Valley, it opened your eyes to a, another path to victory. But, but let, let's talk about resilience. You know, you talk about it in the book. What, how do you think that lays up to this idea of smart quitting or quitting, whether you say chicken out or not, I just heard you're like, this isn't right for me. And then you didn't do it again, because that's not in, in it for you. That's not part of your personality. You obviously have a resilience. How do you see those two kind of play with each other? Well, I mean, listen, if, if there is a secret to my success, it is grit. That honestly, I just love to work. I love to work. Like even now where, you know, it, on paper, at least financially, I don't need to work, but I love to work. And I'll give you an example. So um, the Japanese have a term called Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. And it roughly translate into sort of your, your calling in life, you know, what you love to do, what, what you feel is your reason for getting up in the morning. And I think that the, that finding your ikigai and, and there could be multiple ones throughout your life is the height of just goodness and, you know, realizing who you are. And I interviewed for my podcast a guy named Mark Manson, and he wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F-U-C-K. And um, 
he told me something that has stayed with me since I interviewed him, which is you will know you found your true calling when your true calling invites in involves stuff that other people consider shit work they don't want to do. Right. So you as a podcaster, you understand that podcasting has a lot of shit work to it. Like you got to do the research about the person. You got to record it. I don't know about you, but we do a lot of editing of every interview. Yeah. So, you know, I, and then like I, there's two schools of thought with podcasting. One is you turn on the recorder and if your speaker says, um, uh, well, you know, huh, la, let me think about that. If they say that 250 times, you leave it in because you're being true to life. You're actually representing accurately what the person said and how he said it or how she said it. I have the opposite theory. My theory is I take out all those filler words. My job is to make the person look as remarkable as possible. Mm. And so when you listen to my podcast, it's very, very clean. Now, this takes hours to do because some ums and ahs you should leave in. Some ums and ahs are just fillers. So we have myself and others, we like go over this. We probably spend... 10 to 15 hours editing per hour. And I will tell you, so at the beginning of my podcast, I never record the introduction as I'm interviewing the person because I feel that I will learn things in the podcast that I will want to introduce in the intro. Mm -hmm. So I can't do the intro because I don't know what I'm going to learn yet, right? There might be some great story that... You know, like if you were introducing me to this podcast, you, you, if you did the intro after, you might say, you're going to hear Guy explain why envy is a good thing. So keep listening. Now, you would not have known that if you tried to record the intro when we started this, right? Right. And so I will tell you that this 60-second intro and the 30-second outro it usually takes me an hour to record that 90 seconds, take after take after take, rewriting the script. And so that's, that's the kind of shit work that podcasting involves. And when you write a book, you have to edit your book literally hundreds of times, hundreds of times. That's also shit work. But when you find that you love editing your book hundreds of times and you, you love, you know, spending 60 minutes to get 90 seconds, that's when you know you've discovered your ikigai. I love that. You know, I did an episode of Solo called Finding Your Ikigai in 2024. And, one, and I think you're kind of hitting on it. What, I love your thoughts on this where I said, you know you've found your ikigai when, you're, when you feel that good stress to get and, and that good stress when you're doing good work. But it's, it's, there's a little stress involved because, you know, you want to make sure it's, it's done well. I mean, right. Is, is that kind of what you're saying, essentially? Um. Or at least a component. I, I must of it. admit, I don't feel stress per se editing my book or editing my podcast. I just feel this absolutely obsessive compulsive syndrome that I want to get this perfect. And I want, you know, like in my tests, I'm going to show you more of my insipid shallowness. <laughs> in my tests, I always fantasize that Terry Gross 
or Malcolm Gladwell or Stephen Dubner is listening to my podcast and they're saying, shit, he's a better interviewer than I am. Uh. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody has to have goals, right? That's my goal. I love it, man. I want to be the best interviewer in all of podcasting. I love it. So speaking of that, like you've obviously interviewed some some pretty amazing people. Um, if you were to characterize one thing that most of them have in common, like a thread of commonality amongst these remarkable folks, what, what, would, what would that one thing be? I think it's, well, I have to say only one. I mean, you're limiting to one. If you no, limit no, more me. More than one, more than one. Go for it. <laughs> I think, well. You know, duh, uh, I wrote this book, Think Remarkable, based on 200 interviews, right? And my 40 years of experience. And I divided the book into three sections, growth, grit, and grace. So guess what? <laughs> Remarkable people, they grow, they're gritty. And at the end of their career, they're gracious. That's it. That's it. And... um I can't think of an example of remarkable person who didn't grow, work hard, and then decide they have a success oblige. Uh, and, you know, I, I've had 200 episodes. And let's just say that, you know, people need to understand that my book is called Think Remarkable. My podcast is called Remarkable People. It's not think rich or think famous or famous people or rich people. It's remarkable people. And so um, I, I, we turn down about 10 people a day for people who want to be on our podcast. And I think, I think I have one billionaire on 200 episodes. I have had more convicted felons than billionaires on my podcast <laughs> by a factor of three or four or five. Yeah. I happen to love the stories of people who turn their life around. Yeah. Me and, too. you know, a few weeks ago, I interviewed an artist named Halim Flowers. And Halim Flowers, many people think that he is the next Jean Michel Basquat. Mm. And he was sentenced at 16 to 22 years for being an accomplice in a murder. All right. And five years he got out. Um, excuse me. He was sentenced to 44 years and he got out after 22 or something wow. like that. And, you know, like now he's, he's this brilliant artist. He, he made a painting for me and he's, completely turned his life around and, and you know like i think that is a much more remarkable story than say eric trump okay <laughs> like eric trump never gonna be on my podcast i will die before that happens and so that's the kind of test for me yeah eric trump dealt with his dad <laughs> Shit. Um, so what, um, talking about the book, I mean, first of all, congratulations. Uh, obviously, birthing a book is like birthing a baby, and you've done it 16 times now. So huge congratulations. Uh, yeah, I'm that. all stretched out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let me ask you a question on, uh, it sounds like there's a lot of learnings from the podcast that are parlaying into the book. You talk about the three, these three key elements. Um, the, the subheading of the book is um, essentially around these nine different uh, paths, right? So nine paths to transform your life and make a difference. Do, do you mind talking about those a little bit? Well, actually, <laughs> okay, this is a, this is another great story. L listen, I'm a guest like no other, right? and I don't necessarily mean that's a good thing, but <laughs> um, I I I wanted to, I wanted the subtitle of my book to be, you know, think remarkable, how to make a difference. That's it. That's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Uh, but my publisher said that subtitle doesn't cut it. It's not sales and marketing and, you know, promotional enough. So they came up with like nine paths to transform your life and make a difference. So basically the, the nine paths, um, paths, there's three sections and three chapters each, and it's about, you know, growth and resilience and leadership and graciousness. So those are the the nine things are the nine chapters, and the 10th chapter is a concluding chapter. So just for you book authors, just so you know that the process of getting a book published involves a lot of compromise. And I will tell you, I probably spent more time <laughs> figuring out the subtitle <laughs> than, than, than some of the concepts in that book. Holy cow. Um, so if, if any of you are writing a book and l let's say you're like extremely successful and extremely famous, or you have these great compelling stories and and all these publishers are pursuing you and you have these agents you know like i'm i'm telling you this is the fantasy right i'm telling you right now put in your contract that you control the right to approve the title subtitle and cover mm. put that in the contract that it's your <laughs> title your cover and your subtitle subject to the feedback of your publisher but try to get that in your contract that's that's funny because they're like no 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 guy they you need they need a, a concrete you know path or, or strategy so that they'll <laughs> like i'm like no one's buying the book because of that that's such that's so funny man uh, <laughs> I've, i looked at it i was like okay well, i don't know what that means but um i, I know what the remarkable part means and then, and obviously they're buying it because they respect the other 15 books you've done and all in your body of work. Right. So that is funny. I think, I think there, there's, there's some, I mean, look, there's something to be said about marketing. Obviously you're a guy in the world of sales and marketing, so you can appreciate it, but, but yeah, well, I, you know, it, if I'll tell you, I, I'll give you a little secret about Silicon Valley. So in Silicon Valley, we throw a lot of shit up against the wall and you know, one tenth of 1% sticks and then we go up to the wall and we paint the bullseye around what's stuck. And we say, we hit the bullseye. <laughs> Aren't I so brilliant? So mm. I'm telling you this story because if the book does really well, I'm going to say, yeah, it was the subtitle that I came up with. <laughs> and if the book fails, I'm going to say, I told those people that subtitle wasn't the right one. 
Success so either way, I'm going to win. <laughs> As you know, guy, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well successful books have many fathers <laughs> failure books is only the author <laughs> Just, it's all the, it's all your fault yeah. so i you know i i had you know like i mentioned earlier i'm reading uh the steve jobs book by uh, walter isaacson right now yeah. i'm almost i'm actually almost done with it and your name pops up in that book uh, you were there twice and i and i, I want to i had this is just again my own selfish question um what was it like working there in the early years? I mean, you were there a couple years after the IPO, just before the Mac. That, that's the in reading the book, it sounded like an amazing time to be at, at Apple. Well, it sounds like an intense time um, as well. Just to factually correct you, uh, I worked in there from uh, ninety three to ninety seven and ninety five to ninety seven. Oh shoot! And okay. Apple actually started in the mid seventies. So, like, I I don't know how I can remember this, but. Uh, my employee number was something like 5410. So I was the 5,410th employee of Apple. So it's not like it was me and Steve and was in the garage. That, that would be <laughs> overplaying my significance. So working for Steve Jobs, I mean, basically everything you heard about working for Steve Jobs is true. That he was extremely demanding, extremely short. Uh, with people, he, you know, he 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 ran over people, um, and, and I'm painting all this scary picture of him because you know he intimidated me. I, mean, I thought law school was intimidated. Then I met Steve Jobs, and and yet as I look back, I would not trade that experience for anything. Don't get me wrong; I still have PTSD. But I am where I am because of Steve Jobs' influence. And I don't mean, you know, when people say that, usually they mean because Steve Jobs was a mentoring, patient, loving father figure who guided you. That's not what I mean. I mean, he scared the shit out of me and he made me do the best work of my life because of pure intimidation. And he showed me what's possible. And he also showed me that, you know, maybe not everybody, but there are enough people who care about elegance and design and product quality. So, yes, there's examples of shit that has succeeded. But, you know, that doesn't mean you should go out and purposely make shit because you can find shit that succeeded. So he had an enormous influence on my life. And, you know, he's, he's truly one of the most remarkable people I've ever come across. Yeah, that's that's um, I'm like, I don't know if anyone out there thinks of him as like, a, you know, patriarchic, like pet you on the head, like put his arm around <laughs> you and be your buddy type. I mean, I, I didn't see him like that. I'm like, I'm reading this. I'm like, yeah, this seems about right. <laughs> I mean, it seems like he was a pretty complicated guy. Yeah. Um, so wait, so. So when you after you left there, you you obviously are were a huge evangelist of the product. You you did a lot of writing in in the Macworld world. What um what was it about the product? I mean, I mean, I'm a huge Apple lover. I I, I like the elegance. I like the simplicity. I like yeah. the way the thoughtfulness around the product. What, are you, is that kind of what drew you to it? Give me some thoughts around that. Well, I I think that the key to Macintosh was that kind of like how I want to be remembered. It empowered people. So it made people be more creative and productive, right? And it, it allowed you to do things that you had been doing before, but so much less efficiently. And 
and in a in a way, um, Canva and Macintosh are good bookends on my career because I think that Macintosh enabled people to do things more creatively and productively, and so does Canva. And so um, now between Apple and Canva is a few decades where I was hitting and missing, but Canva and Macintosh, they really, they're all about empowerment. And so uh, I, I think that, you know, Steve Jobs was about empowering people. And, you know, you're right. He, he wasn't the kind that patted you on the head, but I, I will make a case here that as you look back in your life and you say, like, who really was an influence? Who really made me successful or motivated me or whatever, right? I think you're going to say it was the most difficult teacher, the most demanding coach, mm. the most demanding boss. When you're in the middle of it, you may hate it, right? You know, too much homework. The coach made me run, you know, till I dropped from exhaustion. And he made me shoot a thousand free throws every day. And, you know, he threw the chair in the middle of the game at me and all that. And, all. and this boss made me, like, work 60 hours a week. And, you know, none of this remote bullshit, you know. <laughs> and, and. I think now it may take you 20 years. Don't get me wrong, because it took me 20 years to realize that the, the most influential teacher in my life was my English teacher in high school, who was the toughest teacher I ever had. And so when you're in the middle of it, you're always looking for the easy teacher and the easy coach and the easy boss. But I would make the case that those people are not helping you. Ultimately, it's the toughest ones. I love that, man. I, by the way, if you don't know this, I just, I just marked this clip because I was like, this is, the, this is the juice right here. And I, and I think that there is like, I'm Gen X. I grew up with immigrant parents. So like I was a division one wrestler in college. So you're speaking my language. I, I do think that there is, in fact, that's why I said Ayalani, that you guys had a good wrestling program like that high school did. So that was my, <laughs> that was my connection there with to that. But um, you know, one of my, I, 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 I know several wrestlers. Uh, I actually interviewed one named Tim Kendall, and he was uh, president of Pinterest, and he was the guy who figured out Facebook's monetization um, strategy. And I have a theory about wrestlers that, l listen, if you're a great athlete and you're a baseball player, football player, basketball player, you know that there is this possibility that you're going to be in the NBA or MLB, or NFL, or, you know, World Soccer League, or something like that, right? But if you're a wrestler, you know there's nothing. <laughs> I mean, the, be, uh, if people think you go from collegiate, you know, wrestling to professional wrestling, that's no. not how it works, right? Rarely, it's completely rarely. different. And so if you're a wrestler and you're willing to put in that sacrifice – and you're willing to put in all that hard work. And if you become the best collegiate wrestler in the world, and maybe you win an Olympic gold medal or whatever, you still might be poor, right? There's no <laughs> yeah. guarantees. So if you're a wrestler, you're all about grit and perseverance. Yep. And I would 
I would hire a wrestler anytime for a company because I know they can put up with pain and they can sacrifice. So hats off to you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I always <laughs> tell people, I go, wrestling's one of the few sports that is not fun and you win you either win by beating someone up or you get beat up. <laughs> like not even, not metaphorically, literally. <laughs> so yeah, thank you. I, I agree. Sounds I like it. entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I always said I, I, my first business, I started when I was 25 and I grew to like 150 employees in three years. And I, and I, when I, at the end of it, I said, oh, this is just like a wrestling match. You just get your ass kicked every day and you get better. So that's that's a very good metaphor. Um, what, well, what, you know, I mean, people need to understand that w when you talk to, I think, successful entrepreneurs, <laughs> if they're being honest with you, it's it's never a story of you know like unicorns farting pixie dust. That's just <laughs> not how it is. No, BS. It's grit. It's like oh, somebody once described writing as the process of. You open up your vein on your arm and you pour your blood on a page. <laughs> and and that's what writing is like. It's this shit sandwich ikigai, right? I think many people have this impression of writing that you know, you're you're on a you're on a windswept beach and it's it's your beach cottage and your your kids are all straight A students and they just scored you know sixteen hundred on the SAT and they're trying to figure out should I go to Dartmouth or Yale or Stanford and your house is perfectly clean dinner is already you know prepared and it's like ten course Julia Child Martha Stewart level and. You now are going to write and you, you get your parchment paper and you get your Mont Blanc fountain pen with the 18 karat gold nib and you sit down and the words just flow from your brain onto the gold nib and you turn in that draft and your editor says, oh my God, this writing is perfect. We don't need to do anything. And I love your title and I love your subtitle and I love your idea for a cover. And then Oprah says, oh, I want you on my show. And Terry Gross calls up and says, no, don't go on Oprah's show. Go on Fresh Air. If you think that's what writing is like, you're hallucinating. <laughs> you know, I learned the first draft. I wrote a book. And when I was writing it, my, my publisher said, listen, the first draft's called a vomit draft for a reason. Because you get all the words out and it's not supposed to look pretty. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. I swear to God, man, you and I are soulmates because I believe, and I have used this before, so I'm not just, you know, blowing smoke. I'm telling you, I have told people writing the first step is you vomit everything onto the page as yeah. fast as you can. And then for the next year, you're picking out little pieces of nutrient and getting rid of the vomit. That's what writing is like. Yeah. I love <laughs> it, man. Oh, who, who knew we, who knew this is where we would go on the show? <laughs> this, is, this is amazing. Now you got to change your intro. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I do do it. I do an intro before the intro. So, uh, the, 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 so, so listeners, you'll be hearing about this in the first 30 seconds. Uh, Oh, uh, guy! Listen to guy explain why writing is like vomit. <laughs>
from the um, author of Think Remarkable, <laughs> Vomit Remarkable. Oh, I love this man. Um, look, I want to respect your time, and I, and I know we got a little bit of a late start here, um, but I, I, I love a couple of things. First of all, uh, the book's coming out, I believe, in March. If if you wouldn't mind giving the listeners some uh, how they can get a hold of the book, and then well, we always ha- have a greatness <laughs> question. So I want to do our greatness question. If my publisher, who I truly do love, Wiley, I love them. They're very good publisher, but if they're doing my their job. You will not be able to escape this book. <laughs> It'll be in every airport bookstore, Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, Kepler's in Menlo Park, Santa Cruz bookshop on the west side of Santa Cruz, Two Birds bookshop on the east side of Santa Cruz. I mean, it should be everywhere. So um I get it's on Amazon already. And uh you know, like like Listen, if you if you've listened this long to the podcast, you you know that. Listen, I'm sixty years, sixty nine years old. Okay, at sixty nine, you feel an enormous sense of freedom. Which let me translate that. It means I just don't give a shit. Okay, I mean, I'm not worried about looking good on LinkedIn so that someone reaches out to hire me as a CMO. I just don't give a shit. So what I care about is that my book empowers you. And I'm telling you, I took the wisdom of 200 remarkable people, Jane Goodall, Steve Wozniak, Stephen Wolfram, Angela Duckworth, Martha Stewart, uh, Margaret Atwood. You name it. And I took what I digested from them. I took 40 years of what I learned working at Apple and Google, Board of Trustees of Wikipedia, Mercedes-Benz Brand Ambassador. And I wrote this book. Now, this book is not, it's not one of these self-glorification, you know, the Kawasaki way. That's bullshit. This is not the Kawasaki way. This is what I digested from other people. This is not the gospel according to Guy. And um, I promise you, it will help you make a difference. And just so I'm perfectly clear, this is not a self-help book in the sense of, oh, this is how you need to reposition yourself. And this is how you become a thought leader. And this is how you convince people that, you know, you're worth hiring for speeches and consulting. The fundamental promise of this book is if you make a difference, if you make the world a better place, and you, you don't have to be Jane Goodall, you can make the world a better place for one person, a small classroom, a coaching team, whatever it is, you make the world a better place. If you make a difference, people will consider you to be remarkable. And the way you be remarkable is you make a difference. Not that you, like, I can honestly tell you that I would be astounded if Jane Goodall or Steve Jobs woke up one day and say, how can I get people to think I'm remarkable? What should I do? Oh, maybe I should figure out if chimpanzees can use tools. That would make me remarkable. That's not how it works. You you make a difference and people will consider you remarkable. You 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 couldn't stop it if you tried. That's the key. Yeah. I love it, man. Guy, the book is Think Remarkable, Nine Paths to Transform Your Life and Make a Difference. We're gonna put What a great the, subtitle. I love the subtitle is the only reason I'm gonna <laughs> read it. Um <laughs> 
Um, you know, we always, um, first of all, we're going to put, uh, got to go out there, audience, buy the book. It's going to be on Surround Sound, so uh, you'll see it all over the place, but we'll make sure we put links in the show notes. So go out there and get the book. Can't wait to get it myself. Uh, we always like to end, Guy, with the greatness question here. You've been, you've already done it, but I'm going to do it anyway, just to, just to stay true to our discipline of our format on the show. So you ready for the greatness question, my friend? Fire away. All right. So. What is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you've overcome in your life? And how did you overcome it? But this is not such a simple question. I mean, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. I, got, I got to pause you here. I got to pause you. So, so in the intro, I'm doing the intro of the show with Guy. He's like, hey, hey, just let's, we can get the show started. You don't, you don't need to. I was, and, and, and what he doesn't know is I was going to tell him that this is a question I asked. <laughs> okay. But, but wait, wait. <laughs> Don't you dare edit this part out. I'm not editing this out. <laughs> okay. Okay, so well the the reason why I'm it, it'll hesitating here is that that question presumes that I consider myself great. Ah, okay. Okay. And listen, no one's going to accuse me of humility, but I am not great like Jane Goodall great or Margaret Atwood great, okay? So this book is about helping you become great. It's not about me positioning me as great. So I don't have to be great to help you be great. I just have to figure out how to get the lessons of great people and communicate them to you. Now, I hope I've done that in a great way, but this book is not about me. This is, you know, this is, this is remarkable dad, mediocre dad. Okay? <laughs> this is not rich dad, <laughs> poor dad. <laughs> I want you to be great. This ain't about me. I love it, man. Guy <laughs> Kawasaki, seriously, so much fun having you on the show, my friend, and so much gratitude from here at The Greatness Machine. Thank you. Well, yeah, you were able to bring me out of my shell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that it was real tough. <laughs> I really struggled with that one. <laughs> no. You're, you're, uh, there's a reason why that people love you the way they do, my friend. But thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I'm really okay, excited. Okay, all the best, about. and um, I'm glad you mastered your uh, Long Beach studio. The sun <laughs> never sets on you, Darius. <laughs> Guy, until next time, we'll see you later. Peace out, everybody. All right. We love Take you. Take care. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. 
And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. Appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.